So every Sunday morning when I make my commute to church, I, I drive across London Bridge and then into the city, and then I, I drive along past Bank Junction, the Bank of England, and then turn left onto Gresham Road, and that's where I park. But on that commute, I pass a church building that only relatively recently have I found out who the man who once pastored it. The, the, the church building is called St. Mary's Woolnoth. You may have been in it. You may have visited it. It's right there on the, the corner of Lombard Street and King William Street at Bank Junction. And the reason I liked it when I drive past it to, to take a glance at it is because that church building reminds me of the amazing grace of God. You see, in 1780 to 1807, it was pastored by John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, who preached about God's amazing grace from that pulpit week after week. And you know his testimony, his story. He was a a transatlantic slave trader. Until on the 10th of May, 1748, his ship full of African slaves that he was about to sell was caught in a violent storm. And he was terrified in that storm regarding what was going to happen to his own life. He'd been brought up with a Christian mother and she'd taught him the gospel, but he'd completely rejected it when he was young. And there in that violent storm, he cried out to God to have mercy on him. Now, you know what mercy is? Mercy is when God does not give us what we deserve. What did John Newton deserve? This slave trader, this man who was leading a a sinful lifestyle, well, he deserved death. He deserved the just judgment of God. But in mercy, God not only spared his life, that night God completely changed his life. He opened his eyes to see Jesus. He came to discover the amazing forgiveness that Jesus won through his life, death, and resurrection. You know, that's actually what grace is. If mercy is when God does not give us what we deserve, grace is when God gives us things we don't deserve. Grace is when God gives us things we don't deserve, and he received new life forgiveness. And it is truly a story of amazing grace. Because when John Newton was the minister just along the road there, one of the men in his congregation who was his friend and and he became his mentor was William Wilberforce, who went on to spearhead the campaign that abolished the transatlantic slave trade. If you've never read his biography, if you've never watched the film Amazing Grace, you need to do it. Now, why do I mention staring at that church, reminding myself of grace? Well, when we come to Numbers chapter 15 this morning, this is a chapter that I hope you will be able to go back to and look at and remember the amazing and surprising grace of God that is in high-definition display here. Now, just so we can remind ourselves of the amazing mercy and grace of God that we see here, we we need to remember the backdrop. God's people, as we we looked at last week in Numbers 13 and 14, they'd been brought right to the edge of the promised land. The spies were sent in for 40 days. They, they, They scoped it out, 
and then they returned with a, two conflicting reports. The majority report, we cannot go up. We cannot go in. The men there are giants. They'll have us for a snack. And then the minority report brought by G Joshua and Caleb. We can go up because the Lord is with us. Well, what happened, the people of Israel chose to go with the majority report. And there in the wilderness, they rebelled against God. And God in judgment, just judgment, struck down the ten men dead. And then Moses prayed that God would not do the same to the people. God relented. He heard the cry. He pardoned the people. But God, in judgment for their disobedience, said that everyone above the age of 20 would not enter the promised land. They would wander in the wilderness for 40 years and die. And only their kids would enter into the promised land. Well, it's against that backdrop, right, that we come to chapter 15. Now, hear these amazing and surprising words that open this chapter. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the people of Israel. Now, just hold on there for a moment, right? The very fact that God is still speaking to the rebellious people is itself an act of grace. But what does God say to them? When you come into the land, you are to inhabit, which I am giving you. God speaks to them, and, and presumably he's actually addressing the younger generation, all those under the age of 20, and he says to them, you are going to enter the land. I am not done with you as my people. In effect, you have a glorious future. And it's not yet begun. These words are both an, an evidence and an assurance to them that notwithstanding the judgment that had come upon their fathers, the Lord was nevertheless committed to continuing relations with them. Now what we're going to see as we work our way through this passage is that God didn't just want relations with his people. God wanted deep, intimate, rich fellowship and communion with his people. Numbers 15 is the most fitting sequel to Numbers 14. Because Israel's unbelief and disobedience that led to a broken relationship with God was not the end of the story for God's people. You see, the amazing thing about God is that we might go backward in unbelief but he will always take his plans and purposes forward. So we must not think of this chapter as an anticlimax. We must not come to this chapter thinking, man, this seems like a really strange set of miscellaneous laws about sacrifices. Instead, we need to see that this chapter is a chapter that points us to the victory of God's grace over God's people's rebellion and unbelief. As we work through this chapter, I've got three headings. We're going to look at verses 1 to 21, under the heading Grace on full display in worship. And then verses 22 to verse uh, 36, Grace on full display in the sacrificial system. 
And then we're going to look at verses 37 to 41, grace on display in the clothing. So grace on display in worship, grace on display in the sacrificial system, grace on display in the clothing. Now, anytime you're reading through the Old Testament, I guess, like me, you, you come to passages that, that contain laws and regulations, and you, you instantly think, how am I supposed to understand these? How am I supposed to interpret these? Now, I forgot to bring one of Theo's children's books, but I wanted to do it as, as part of an illustration. You see, when we come to Old Testament laws and regulations, ceremonial laws, sacrificial system, one way to, to view them is the same way as a child views a 3D picture book. You know, kids can't read. And so they have these picture books, and, and, and when they're reading along, the really important things are seen visually and dramatically. And, and Theo's got these amazing picture books where you, you, you flick the next page, and boom, up pops this cardboard cutout of an elephant. That's because that's the main character in the story. Well, as God's children, Israel, were being raised by God, the way that God wanted to teach them important spiritual truths was in vivid and dramatic ways. And so he would use things like sacrifices. He would use ceremonial laws so that he could impress upon their minds and on their hearts important spiritual truths about what it meant to relate to God, about what it meant to know something of God's salvation. Now, one of the key things we need to be aware of is that when we read Old Testament ceremonial laws and, sac- and the sacrificial system, we read them in the light of the fact that Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament. They were shadows all pointing forwards to the substance, Jesus Christ. And so when we read a chapter like this, we need to understand, we need to read it in light of the fact, what does this mean for us? in light of what Jesus has done for us. Now, we don't need to make our minds up. We don't need to try and figure out how how do you apply this to our lives. The New Testament does that for us. You see, one of the most important um, interpretive principles is this. Scripture always interprets Scripture. So are we to offer sacrifices, burn grain offerings? Are we to not gather wood on a Sabbath? Are we to put tassels in all of our clothing? No. What are we to do? Well, as we walk through this this text, I'll I'll hopefully show you from the New Testament what all these things point us to. So let's pick things up, and we're going to be thinking about the the grace in in the worship. And see, if you look down at chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, this opening section, God's people are being told, you are going to offer God sacrifices when you enter into the land. These sacrifices in this first section have got nothing to do with sin. These aren't sin offerings. These sacrifices that are mentioned here are more associated with fellowship and communion. They're called burnt offerings or fellowship offerings. And what was to happen is God's people were to take a meal, food, put it on the altar, and in some instances, everything would be burnt up. In other instances, they would take part of the food, they would put it on the altar, they would consume, they would eat the rest of the food, and when the smoke ascended from the altar up to God, it would be a pleasing aroma in his nostrils, because God was a participant in the meal. You see, one of the 
really important things that runs through the Old Testament is God wants table fellowship with his people. God wants to commune with them, to dine with them, to enjoy intimate, rich fellowship. Now, if you look down at chapter 15, beginning in verse 4 and going on to verse 10, we are told that God's people were to offer them certain kinds of animals. A sheep, a ram, or a bull. If you think of those animals, right? Sheep, small. Ram, slightly bigger. Bull, huge. So think small meal. Think medium-sized meal. Think super-sized meal. And God says that when you, when you offer this meat for a meal, it's to come with sides, right? It's got to come with carbohydrates. That is flour mixed with oil, and it's also got to come with a, a side of, a, of wine, a beverage. So one of the striking things running from verse 4 through 10 is that when you offer a, a sheep, you, you offer it with a certain amount of uh, flour mixed with oil and a certain amount of wine. And then if you offer a ram slightly bigger, the, the flour increases, the oil increases, the wine increases. And if you offer it with a bull... Once again, God says, you've got to increase the flour, the oil, the wine. And as this is offered before God, and as the smoke ascends, and as the people enjoy the meal as well, it will be a sweet aroma before the Lord. Now, you cannot miss this. This is a picture of grace. God wants his people, when they're living in the land, when they're enjoying the land that's flowing with milk and honey, he wants them to come before him and offer him these offerings so that they can enjoy fellowship together. Now, the grace of these sacrifices of worship, they only continue because if you look at what it says in verses 11 and 12, verse 12 onwards, God goes on and says, Uh, verse 13 rather to 16, God goes on and says, native Israelites shall do these things in this way. They will offer the food in this way. And so too will a stranger who's sojourning with you. They will offer food offerings in this way, as you do. There will be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. A statute forever throughout the generations. Now, this is incredible, incredible because here we have a foreshadowing of what is to come in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jew will worship with the Gentile, side by side. One rule for all. You'll come in the same way. You'll make the same offerings. You'll come to God in worship in all the same manner. Here is a foreshadowing of what is going to be the reality that we see so clearly in the New Testament. Here's a Here is a partial fulfillment of the promise that God had given to Abraham, that the blessing was to be for God's people and for all nations of the world. Now, as we look at these offerings, the question comes is, so how do we, in light of Jesus fulfilling all the Old Testament sacrifices, how do we apply them to our lives? Romans 12, which was our call to worship in view of God's mercy, in view of God's grace, 
offer your lives as living sacrifices. This is your holy and pleasing act of worship. Or what about Ephesians 5? Verses 1 and 2, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children as, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You want to know how we apply this to our life? We, we, we discover that our purpose in life is to be engaged as a result of receiving the grace of God in worship, giving ourselves wholly to the worship of God. We love as Christ loved. We serve as Christ served. The writer of Hebrews captures it brilliantly in Hebrews 13. He speaks about worship of God as being the sacrifice of praise from our lips. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You want to know how we live in light of what God's word is saying here. He's shown his people mega off the charts grace in giving them the land, in forgiving them, in bringing them into close relationship. And he says in light of that, the most fitting response is to worship him and to serve him. Think about this, right? Maybe you, you've had a friend, you were really close to it, and then you have some sort of falling out. And you know what happens because we're sinners? When we fall out with someone and we try and even repair the relationship, things don't immediately go back to what they were once like. What were they once like? We sometimes feel a bit suspicious of our friend. Maybe give them a cold shoulder. Maybe not as close or as intimate. God's people had just rebelled in the wilderness against them flagrantly, brazenly. And what does God say in response? I want close intimate fellowship. I want to restore you into a land of abundance. I want all of you, not just a part of you, in worship and service. In in verses 17 to 21, there's one other offering that's mentioned. You see, when the people move into the promised land, they're going to have the blessing of being able to make bread for themselves all the time. And God says, when you make bread, the very first thing you got to do is give me the first loaf. In other words, God says, I want the first fruits of, of all that you have. He says to his people, I, I want you to tithe of the first fruits of that which you make. And, and that's because God wants to instill in his people, I want the best from you. I I want you to see that you're utterly dependent on me for giving you the land and you depend upon me for your daily bread and to show that you acknowledge that and recognize that and in response, in grateful response, I want you to give me the first tenth of what you have. It's a principle that runs throughout the Old Testament, giving of tithes to the Lord. And, And brothers and sisters, anytime you and I pray, we see this in the New Testament, before a meal, we give thanks. Why? To say, God, we acknowledge that our bread comes from you. I don't know if you do this, but it it is a good principle that flows from the Old Testament. 
every time you get money, whether it's your salary, whatever it is, it's a good principle to say, God, I'm going to give you the first of it, the best of it. And, and when we give, God doesn't demand it from us. He, he wants us to give as cheerful givers in response to what he has done for us in the gospel. You know, those of you who just became members this morning, you made a promise that you're going to give of your time, your talents, your gifts and your graces to the work and the worship, to, to help the strengthen the work and the worship of this church. God wants of you in response to what he's done for you, the best of you. He wants you to give of your time and your talents to use your graces for the upbuilding of his kingdom here in London. But it's all in light of the grace that he has lavished on you in the gospel in Christ. And one of the most amazing principles of the kingdom is this, right? God delights to bless his people so that we might be a blessing to others. Seek first the kingdom of God and then all his righteousness shall be added to you. One of the most incredible things is is when we put God first, God, he, he often, not always, but he often, he blesses us in such a way that we can be an incredible blessing in his kingdom. And so, we see the grace of God here on full display in these sacrifices that were to be given as a symbol of worship in response to what God had done. I need to say this, that all the Old Testament sacrifices were fulfilled in Jesus. All of them are done away with. But the principle remains in view of God's mercy we must give our bodies, our whole lives, as living sacrifices to our God. We come now to verses 22 to, to 36, and here we come to think about the grace of sacrifice for sin. You see, here in this section, that God tells his people what he requires for the atonement for their sin. God says, you can come before me, you can bring sacrifices, and your sins will be forgiven. In verse 24, God gives instructions for what happens when the whole community sins. They can come and offer a male goat. In in verse 27, he says, if an individual sins, you can come and you can give as a sin offering a female goat. And once again, the same rule applies for both the native-born and the sojourner in the land. There is one means, there is one way for your sins to be forgiven through the shedding of blood. Now just remember, the Old Testament, the sacrificial system are just shadows. They're actually pointing to a greater reality, the need for Jesus, God's, the Lamb of God, to come and to shed his blood so that his people's sin can be forgiven. But God is impressing upon his people, sin is serious, sin needs atoning. Now, I don't know if you noticed it, but when Peter was reading it, there are two different kinds of sins. There's something that God calls unintentional sin. And then there's another kind of sin called high-handed sin or defiant sin. And in this section, we are told that there is only sacrifice for unintentional sins. There is no sacrifice offered by God for high-handed, defiant sin. Let let me try and illustrate the difference between 
unintentional sins and, and, and high-handed sins. Now, it is true, right? There is no way that in, in any of our hearts that when we sin, it's completely void, devoid of intent. Because we're sinners, there's always sinful intention. But God is saying to his people, he's speaking to them in, in, in childlike language, when you sin unintentionally, and, and, and the illustration that comes to my mind is the difference between manslaughter and murder. So, this building's under construction. Imagine I'm a builder. Imagine I'm on the roof of this building tomorrow, and I'm trying to fix the tiles. And as I'm on the roof, I, I hit a slate, and it falls off, and it falls down, and it hits one of the other builders in the head, and he falls and dies. I'll be charged with manslaughter. I'm responsible for the death of that man. It was not intentional, but I was responsible for it. Say that I'm on the roof and I've had a fallout with one of my fellow workers and I start picking up slates and I start throwing them at him in rage and he falls down and he dies. I will be charged with murder. That's high-handed. That's defiance. And, and God in this section, he says to his people, there is atonement for unintentional sin. And in many ways, it's, it's God saying, this is grace. I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you when you get it wrong. Just come to me. Offer these sacrifices. Come to me through the pathway of repentance. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge that you've sinned before me. And I'll take your sin away. But what about high-handed defiance? And there is no such sacrifice mentioned. And, and to illustrate the point, we get this story. And this, there's a minister in London by the name of Steve Chalk. And, if there's, and he just loves, he, he was once an evangelical, he's now a liberal, and, and he sometimes reads the Old Testament. And, he, and there are certain passages that can, have convinced him of why he doesn't believe in the God of the Old Testament. He must be a moral monster. And this is one such passage. Because this case study that God uses for defiant sin is to, tell the story of a man who was in the wilderness with God's people and on the Sabbath he started gathering wood and then Moses went to God and said God what will we do with this man and God says you'll stone him to death you'll cut him off from the people and we read that as modern people and we think that is shocking he was gathering wood but we're reading it wrong let's read it as ancient people. Every single Jew knew from the fabric and the foundation of creation, God had worked six days and then rested on the Sabbath. And he blessed it and he declared it holy. And, and God's purpose in doing so was to say, I am holy and I want you, my people, to rest in my finished work and I want you to be holy. When God led his people out of Egypt, this very people that we're studying right now, he took them to Mount Sinai and he gave them his law, the Ten Commandments, and then ceremonial laws. And in Exodus chapter 35, verse 2, God said to his people, honestly, six days you shall work, but see on the Sabbath, you shall not go and gather wood. You don't need to work. Because God wanted to teach his people the importance of rest. And, and, and in Exodus 35, verse 3, he said, you will not light a fire. You don't need to work in that sense. You don't need a fire for work purposes. So there's this man in the, in the camp, and one day he goes out, and in front of all the people, he starts gathering wood on the Sabbath. 
Every single Jew knew this is high-handed sin. This is defiance against God. And just think, he's gathering wood because he's going to lay a fire. And what do you do? What happens when you have a fire? You have smoke. So everyone could see it. This man's saying, God, I don't care. I don't care about your laws. I don't care about who you are. This is cosmic treason. This is rebellion against his creator. And so God makes of this man an example. Now, you and I may think, that's severe, but hold up a minute, right? Let me use a different illustration. Say that tomorrow I park my car on Gresham Street, and I get a parking ticket. And then I choose not to pay for my ticket. I won't go to prison. But see, the judge cites me to court, and I refuse to go. And then he does it again, and I refuse again. Well, then the judge can send me to prison. Now, you might think, what, for a parking ticket? No, because of contempt of court. Because if the judge were just to ignore me disobeying the law, I'm making a mockery of the legal system. A mockery of the judge. And God is here was impressing upon his people before they entered the land, you will not play games with me. Sin is not trivial. Sin is deadly serious in the presence of a holy God. It is a cosmic criminal act. And so God was trying to impress upon his ancient people the importance of the fact that he in grace had given them one day in a week where he wanted them to rest and he wanted them to enjoy communion and fellowship with him. Now, how do we apply this in light of what Jesus has done? And how do the people here, how are they supposed to process all of this? Well, just think about this. Chapters 13 and 14. What were the people guilty of? Unintentional sin? Nope. High-handed, defiant sin. They'd come to the end of the promised land... The the men, the spies, came bearing huge cluster of grapes, pomegranates, and figs. They said it was a land flowing of milk and honey. Joshua and Caleb said, the Lord will go with us. And they said, no, we want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to slavery. This was high-handed, defiant sin. And what do we see? God saying to the younger generation, you are going to enter into the land. This is a sign of God's remarkable grace. Don't get me wrong, there were consequences for the older generation. They were cut off from seeing the land. Here's where this finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Every one of us in this room have sinned against God high-handedly. Before you were a Christian, John Newton, when he was a slave trader, I was high-handed defiance. God, you will not be in charge of my life. You will not tell me what to do. And here's the most incredible thing. God gives his firstborn son his very best, his one and only son, to come, to live the perfect life that we could not live, and then die. We read it in the Apostles' Creed. 
he descended into hell. He was cut off from the land of the living. He took the curse for our defiance. His blood was shed so that our sins could be atoned for. There is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood, and we see it on full display in the cross, and then in his glorious resurrection, triumphing over the grave. The incredible thing is the story points us forward to the fact that Christ is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. He is the one who came so that all of our sins could be forgiven, even our high-handed and defined sin. Oh, what grace and mercy. As we draw this to a close, time has escaped us, but verses, the final few verses, God, through Moses, instructs the people that all of them are to attach tassels to the four corners of their clothing. And so the question is, as new covenant people, are we supposed to wear a certain kind of clothing as we come to church to remind us of God's ways, God's grace? You see, that's what they were to do. They were to put these tassels on. There'd be a little bit of blue, a cord of blue in the tassel. And that was actually on, in, the, in the linen that was in the temple, that was on the ark, that would be on the priest's garments. But it was all to point the people to the covenant love of God, the Hesed love of God, so they would remember the grace of God. God wanted them never to forget. Now, here's the thing. When I drive to church and I pass St. Mary's, will not, I can look at that church and I can remember John Newton pastored in there. His is a life story of amazing grace. He preached amazing grace Sunday by Sunday. But you know, in the new covenant, God has given us one of the most glorious reminders, and it does not involve clothing. He's given us a meal called the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, there's bread, and it reminds us of Jesus' body broken for us. And in the meal, there's wine, and it reminds us of Jesus' blood shed for us. And we don't come with any clothing, but do you know what? We've, been, we've received new clothing. Because Jesus, what he did on the cross, he took our sin and he gave us his, he imputed to us his righteousness. He gave us a robe of righteousness. Why? So that we could come to the table and have fellowship with him. So that we could come and commune with him. So that we could come and enjoy him and love him and know him, even though we've rebelled against him. He's given us this meal so that we can celebrate and remember what it costs for the forgiveness of our sins. You know, when you forget the grace of God, you won't worship God as you ought to. You won't serve God as you ought to. Because the only way that we can worship God and serve God as we ought to is from hearts that are full of thankfulness. And so this morning, God's invitation to us is to come to this meal and to remember what he's done for us in his son so that we can worship him in a way that is a sweet, pleasing aroma in his sight and serve him in a way that honors him and pleases him. So as we come to the table, as we prepare our hearts, let's prepare our hearts to come and remember and celebrate the amazing grace of God. Let's pray.